that's the presiding the umbrella theme for the whole thing was morality and exploration of morality. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics. With me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In today's episode of Tender Buttons, we welcome one of the most exciting young writers coming out of Bristol this year, Moses McKenzie, whose debut novel, Olive Grove in Ends, is an acclaimed coming-of-age story set in Easton, East Bristol, which explores a complex web of moral codes, religion, gentrification and the violence of both the state and the street communities represented in the novel. Olive Grove in Ends was selected as one of the top 10 Guardian debut novels for 2022, and Moses is currently adapting the novel for screen. Hi Moses, welcome to Tender Buttons. Really nice to have you. I thought we would start by just asking you where the title of your book came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, the, the title came from the Bible. All of my um, all of my titles, because I wrote three manuscripts before this book, and then obviously my manuscripts subsequently, all titles have come from like sayings, usually like African or Caribbean sayings, or from the Bible. Like there'll be like adages or or passages that then I'll then take take and twist and make them into a title, uh, as opposed to just having a sentence as a title. But um, yeah, so it comes from the Bible and the story of the ark, and once the flood was over, God sent uh, a dove to Noah with an olive branch in his beak as a sign of peace or God's promise as a covenant. And um, so it essentially translates as peace in ends, ends being the colloquial term that um, we have for like lower income or working class, non-white areas. Um, Bouncing off that, could you kind of say a little bit about like the inception of the novel? Like when you say you said there was a couple of manuscripts before this, but also, yeah, kind of like the how the story started to piece together into the novel that we've now is out in the world and we've yeah sure um so i started conceptualizing it in the summer 2019 i just finished writing my the third manuscript the third full-length novel-length manuscript that i'd written um which was dead and then this one i started conceptualizing and thinking what I, what i want to talk about what i want to write about my writing process is kind of like I always start with my opinions, my opinions then become the themes, the themes then become the characters and the characters, the plot. So it was the same with this book. And I just, um, I, I wanted to write a love letter to my area and then a love letter to my little cousin. And um, so that's what I did. And in the process, I didn't, I didn't really plan the novel. I just wrote it in three months. And then, um, then during the editing process was when the structure or, like, or plan came. I wondered as well, because, like, obviously such a big thing in Olive Grove in the Ends is around, like, space and the geographies of the city. And kind of it begins in, for those who haven't read it, it begins in, like, Clifton, in affluent neighbourhood on the hill, and then, like, the setting of Stapleton Road is so, like, 
importantly evoked in terms of like the lack of space that there is there compared to Clifton, which is why Seon's so desperate to have the house on the hill in Clifton. So I wondered like about what it was right like to write these different areas of Bristol where like the geography and the space of them so reflects like things around class and hierarchies. And then I also wondered about the space of the novel for you, how that could hold those different tensions. It was in the least arrogant way possible, it was easy. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was, it was very easy because it's somewhere I've grown up majority like the vast majority of my life, you know what I'm saying? So I know especially East, I know and Stapleton Road, I know them like very intimately. Poles I know very intimately. I went primary school there. Clifton, I've been there like quite a few times. Obviously not I don't know it in the same way and I kind of just know the suspension bridge and then Clifton Village. And outside of that obviously less less so. But um Clifton's kinda of like a tourist location for me, do you know what I'm saying? I go there for like a tourist. I feel like I'm not in Bristol when I go there. But I like it. I do like it. But um, yeah, so it was just the place was quite was quite easy to write, and I didn't think I didn't have to think about it much. Like when I was talking, when I was saying before, in terms of planning the novel, I think the reason or the way that I was able to write it without a plan was because I know it, the area or the city so well. I know the characters mm. so well. Do you know what I'm saying? Whereas in with other novels, like my next novel that I'm writing now, or even the third novel that I'm planning now, are quite... One's removed... or well, both of them are removed from my period of time. One of them is removed from, like, the country or the geography that, that I'm familiar with. So then so much more research and planning has to go into them. Kind of linked to the idea of space. Um, like, your protagonist... I feel like it's a really moving moment where, like, when, like... So for people who who haven't read it, he has this dream, right, of buying, like, this beautiful house on a hill in Clifton. Um, And then the space that he wants to buy um, gets sold to be built into flats, right? And I I think there's something really interesting in there about, like, possibility and the idea that you might have a dream um, of doing something, but because of, like, your class background or, like, other kinds of intersections of things it's like the 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 possibility of the dream was never really real and I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about that in relation to class and maybe like the idea of choice the the two characters I think that probably best explore that are say on the protagonist and then Cuba his, his cousin because they both are very conscious of there being two worlds and them primarily existing in the one which could be d- described as the working class world, um, or the, to just put labels on it, the criminal working class world. And and then the black criminal working class world. Yeah, and Cuba's response is that only a few people can make it out, very, and, and you have to have certain tools, although he never, he never articulates what those tools are in order to make it out. Um, Seon, I think, through his relationship with with Shona, with his girl, and then through the example of his older cousin, is able to, like, see the way out more... Maybe it's more plausible to him, or maybe he's more of a dreamer, because he doesn't actually make it out at all. I've seen some people describe the novel as hopeful, which made me laugh, because I never... I never intended it for it to be hopeful. Mm. I wouldn't describe myself as hopeful. But um, but perhaps saying is more hopeful 
or on the flip side, m- more naive. And um, yeah, so they he becomes obsessed with this other world and 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 leaving, um, the place that he that he's at. And I think with class, obviously class and race are so inextricably tied, and that's that's been explored for the past however many years, like a hundred years, however many years. Um, so there's not much I can add <laughs> onto that, but I think. I mostly read non-fiction, you know what I'm saying? And I read people who explore the 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 idea of race and class being um, inextricable. And and that's definitely influenced the book, you know what I'm saying? Because it's influenced my thoughts and my my own ideas or perception of life. Just saying there about mainly reading non-fiction. And I was wondering why that was or, or like, is there stuff that you get out of non-fiction that you, you don't get from fiction as a writer? Um... Yeah, I think it's because I was saying. So obviously, my opinion start with my, my book start with my opinions, mm. and my opinions are informed by nonfiction, a lot more than mm-hmm. fiction. You see what I'm saying? Mm. So I think that's that's probably the main reason. But then, um, I don't know. I just I just never really got into the habit of reading fiction as an adult. I read a lot of fiction as a child. Mm-hmm. And even as like a young, like preteen or whatever, or early teen, I read a lot of fiction. But then after that, I've just read either nothing, or when I got to about seventeen, I started reading like loads of nonfiction, and then I continued mm-hmm. to read loads of nonfiction. And then the fiction I read now, I'm reading it to study it, as opposed to reading it to enjoy it. Yeah. But and I think that's just because you you have to be careful what you let influence you as a as a writer. Yeah. You have to you have to be very careful because you you will inadvertently copy things. You know what I'm saying? Like any in any art form that you practice, um, you will inadvertently copy like your peers and that. Can definitely identify if like reading for like writing, mm. and I do, I wish sometimes I could read for pleasure, but it doesn't ever <laughs> doesn't often happen. Yeah. With this, yeah, because that's something maybe a good segue into talking about like your language as a novelist because it's such a potent part of your book and there is so much like code switching that happens in the book but also like moments of like real lyricism and I wondered about like your the influences on your language in terms of because like the each chapter begins with a quote from the bible or the quran or a Jamaican proverb and I wondered about like the influences of those texts on your literary language yeah that's a um yeah I, I like, like the question that um They've had massive influences, specifically the the Bible more than. Maybe more than anything, but definitely it's definitely up there. You know, the Bible, Maya Angelou, mm. probably the two mm. biggest influences on. And then uh, this is just within writing because music is probably the biggest influence on my love of language, but and then my use of it or the the rhythm of the book or the lyricism of the book, but with the Bible, I think it's just, I think it's a beautiful book. You know what I'm saying? I think it's beautifully written. And there's passages that you, I'll read, especially now as I'm reading it. Because obviously as a child I was reading, reading it as uh, a believer. I read it believing, mm-hmm. thinking I was reading God's word. Mm-hmm. And now, the stage of my life, I'm, I'm reading it more as like a historical document. Or just written, a book written by people who are, who are trying to reach God. Or understand God mm-hmm. or just, you know what I'm saying? But, so I see it differently in, in a, through different eyes and I see it as like an appreciate and I just appreciate the language I think a lot more than I appreciated it obviously as a child 
Um, and I, I've seen something where my angel was talking about um, the Bible being one of the influences on, on her language. And I, I see that in her work as well. Touching there in terms of like the influence of music on on your language as well as the Bible. But like I wondered about like your experience, your relationship to language and like when you kind of felt that it was a tool that you could shape to articulate like what you wanted to say about yourself and the world. Early on, I think uh, there's a lot of conversation in my house. There always has been a lot of conversation in my house. So that's that was probably the, the foundation, the starting blocks, you know what I'm saying? My mum read to me as a child, that would have contributed to it. And then um, I used to, I was out, me and my brother were outside a lot as kids, but when we were inside, like we were not like from the generation that grew up with, we probably got internet when we were like six, seven. And then even when we had the internet, it wasn't like a major part of our lives. Like there was like one home computer in a room that we weren't really allowed to use. And then if I was inside, I'd just sit. My dad had a record player and I'd just listen to vinyls. And I'd read the back of the vinyls. Like, I'd read the drummers and the acoustic guitar players and the bass players. And I'd just sit there and read it over and over. I'd just be surrounded like by vinyls. And like, it sounds like it's a kid that'd be raised in the 80s. So I think that's where it came from in regard to music. In terms of expressing myself, obviously the natural step from listening to music is trying to write your own. So I'd write bars. And I'd, I think listening to like American music probably hit the worst period of American music in history in like 2007 2008 when Lil Wayne and Flo Rida were like the biggest artists in the world and Pitbull when Giggs started to rap or he dropped his tape in I think 2007 so I was listening and I was, I was a kid then but primary school I went to the older kids were listening to that so when I was allowed on the whole computer I'd listen to that on YouTube but yeah I probably started listening to Giggs about 2008 9 and then I started writing my own lyrics. And then I'd listen to... My older brother would listen to Grime and a lot of Jay-Z. So I think I just started writing bars. And then from that, I started writing prose in 2017. I, I think as well, like, people do always ask the question, right? Like, um, or like, where did your literary education come from? Like, did you have books in the house when you were growing up? Like, especially if you're writing about class, like, I get asked that quite a lot but I think it does often ignore like yeah if you've grown up with a religion like you're surrounded by literature or if mm. yeah if you're, you've got a family who are really into music like yeah like do you think that is as equal a uh, kind of literary education as someone who has like a library or whatever mm. in their house? No no I don't think it's as equal I agree completely that it, it's definitely some form of education and it definitely lends itself to uh, a proclivity or whatever uh, for literature. But, um, but I don't think it's equal. Because if, if you grow up in a house where there is a library and you have all of these, and you have all of these books, because in that library there would probably be, if it's in this country, there probably would be a Bible in, in, in that library. So, um, and that in that library they could still have a record player. You know what I'm saying? So it's just more... But yeah, I, I do think there are assumptions that are made of people who write. And I think the assumptions are, in some cases, they're, they're fair assumptions to make and others less so. Like, they asked me very early on, like, what's my favourite bookshop to go to? And I just laughed and I was like, I don't, I don't go to bookshops. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't go to bookshops. 
So I don't have a favorite bookshop. They asked me what my favorite library was. I, I don't go to the library, and like, this is you see what I'm saying. But it's like they ask. Mm. That's that's what they would expect of mm. someone who writes. Just kind of like still on the topic of language, but in the book, chapters are framed by quotes from the Bible, the Quran, and Jamaican proverbs. But um, I feel like what the novel explores with language um, is kind of like its power to kind of enact change in people like in terms of following the words of those books but also there's this kind of hypocrisy that happens with certain characters where they will preach from say the bible like um shona's father uh, shona's father the reverend but then like their words don't match their actions so there's this kind of like double-edged sword sometimes where there are people who like devoutly follow through on this like life of integrity following their religion and others where it's like totally marred in like hypocrisy so I like wondered about in what ways are you interested in the novel in the dangers of language when they're used by people in power I was interested rather than the focus as in intent, my intention when I started writing it rather than the focus being on the language my focus was more on the hypocrisy within the religions themselves so there are inconsistencies in or at least through my as my understanding there would definitely be someone, if there was like a shakes next to me or like a pastor next to me, they'd be telling you there's no inconsistencies. But as far as I'm concerned, there's inconsistencies in, in every religion I've studied. And um, how you navigate that as a person of faith, or even not as a person of faith, as you navigate that as someone who has a knowledge or understanding, whether big or small, of these religions, it's, it's quite it's interesting to me. Um, especially when if we just focus on Christianity and Islam, both religions will preach, these are the only way to God. This is the only way to God. And this, they preach like a whole acceptance, accept everything that this says, and you'll go to heaven. Um, I find that very interesting in itself, you know what I'm saying? Like, the fact that there's even two, but there's obviously there's a plethora of religions, but just the folks on these two, or maybe the three with Judaism, but I know less about that. But they're all saying this is the way this is the way, this is the way. And then even within the different denominations in the church or sects within Islam, and I don't know how Judaism is broken down, but I'm sure it is. Um, even within them, there's inconsistencies. Um, and just by the fact that there's multiple ways of being a Christian, multiple ways of being a Muslim, I've heard there's, that's an inconsistency in itself. So I find that interesting. And I find, pe- I find people who speak with certainty about God interesting. And quite, mm. quite disingenuous. Mm, no, not disingenuous. Sometimes I find them disingenuous. Sometimes I admire the faith that they have. Mm. I guess it depends on how, how genuine I believe the person to be. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's what I want to explore. I think then langu- the language or the use of language is a byproduct of that. For, mm. for example, I didn't ever seek or set out to explore masculinity in a book. But because I'm writing about men, masculinity will be explored inadvertently. As soon as I have a, a a a woman as a character, womanhood will be explored inadvertently, which is why obviously this is why you have a responsibility as an artist and you have to be careful. Yeah, I think um, like kind of talking about the contradictions, uh, what came across really strongly for me is how Seon's like caught between all of these different moral and ethical 
biblical code. So there's like Christianity, there's Islam, there's different kind of family values. There's kind of like the social and moral codes of like the street and then the social and mor moral codes of his girlfriend's family who he's living with. Um, and I wondered if that was something like that you wanted to explore in the novel. Like it's almost like he's looking for like the right way to be like within lots of different structures yeah that's that's um that was the goal from the offset was to explore morality morality is the preside as i as i read the book as i wrote the book that's the presiding the umbrella theme for the whole thing is morality and exploration of morality and i wrote um this isn't mine it's an adage but i wrote as one of the opinions that would then become a theme we are a product of our days not a product of our choices and um that 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 is kind of weaved throughout the entire entire book. So all the plot and the character it's all a testament to that adage. Every single character, and in the same way of life, every single character, every single person, is it if you if you if if you saw their family, if you saw their family history, you would understand them. And um, and it's just the same in the book. We're we're all a product of 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 our past and our upbringing. On a like craft level when you say that you like write down your opinions first you have your opinions first do you actually write them down like you have these statements that you want to explore or are they just questions that you're sort of holding in your head I, with an olive grove and angels in my head with my yeah. second novel and the third one i've written them down like their statements quite you just said you were writing from as like one of the guiding like thematic principles i'm interested in that idea of choice because there's a bit amazing bit i think it's in like one of the later chapters where seon's kind of reflecting on like the people on the street who he's been dealing drugs with and how if they'd had the choice of being a banker or being like a politician or some kind of like elite job like that how they'd ha work harder than anyone and it's like it's totally to do with like their what choices are available kind of thing to them and that really struck me, that passage, the whole of it, in terms of like, yeah, showing this thing around like work and the work that we can do, depending on like where we've come from and the choices available. In what ways was like work and ideas of choice explored in Olive Grove and Inns or like, does that interest you as a theme in general? Yeah, it interests me in, um, in regard to like what, in regard to legality and how that defines what we consider work. If weed was legalized tomorrow, as I imagine it would be in the next 20 or 30 years, um, suddenly it would be a, a good profession. So if, you let, if you're someone who lets legality define your morality, then you won't... I don't understand. I don't know if you'll wrestle, wrestle with, with that. Do you know what I'm saying? Or if you're just accepting, oh, okay, cool, that's a good profession. I'd be happy for my son, daughter, nephew, niece to, to do that. So that, I think that's interesting. And as, as I was saying at the launch, there's so many things that have been legal in the past that are, um, I believe, moral, morally wrong and absolutely wrong. Yeah, so that's, that, that's part of it. And then the other part, I think, is in that passage as well, was kind of talking... I didn't go into it too much because I didn't really actually want to explore... I want to explore religion more than I want to explore the law. Um, and I want to explore people's relationships with a heavenly punishment or divine punishment as opposed to an earthly punishment. But touching on society and on human punishment and that, I think these 
these things that are illegal could very easily be regulated and and and, and stopped altogether if they wanted or or legalized and 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 regulated but they're, they're very high earning the the root of the issue is 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 the user as opposed to the seller and i'm not not blaming the users and it's, it's all their fault but if if there wasn't a demand there wouldn't be a supply and that's every i think everyone on earth will understand that you know what i'm saying like children children understand that so the government definitely do but which is why creating these like heavily policed areas that we call ends doesn't make sense because police don't are not preventative um they're not designed to be preventative they're simply designed to arrest and and administer um punishment or carry people to their punishment the police are just the supply as opposed to the demand and if there was like a holistic outview outlook on public health th- then there wouldn't be as much of a demand and i guess this it's it's against um it's the product of being in a capitalistic and individualistic society as well um do you think like relating that to the novel do you think that the novel like has a political role to play or can have political influence or do you think that it's something separate i think it i think it can it wasn't intended to be but i think it can in because it's a true depiction of the time that we live in so because of, because of that it can be everything is everything's political you know what i'm saying every every choice we make is politi- political because identity is political i guess what struck me was yeah these different ways these tensions in the novel between like so seon's christian upbringing and his gradual movement towards islam and the hope of that shift to islam for him as a, and then there's these bits where his like mother evoked christian teachings yet has this real neglect of him as a mother um throughout the different bits of it so i wondered if you could speak a little bit about like the power of religion as a thing that heals as well as hurts in those different contexts yeah re- religion is something i always write about so i think it's the most inter- it's the most interesting thing well religion and god i agree religion is something that that heals mm. and provides hope religion is something that provides stability and i think it does in two ways like it can, it can just be a crutch um and and people can follow their religion blindly which both religions discourage but people can follow their religions blindly because people are involved in religion and as soon as people are involved it becomes flawed and they become institutions and as soon as they become institutions they become human they become patriarchal they become racist they become everything that we are so that there's 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 beauty in it and there's there's destruction in it and I think that's 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 in the novel and that's explored through through individuals. There there are about three characters who are very or maybe four, although Seon's dad's a bit absent. But Seon's mum, Erica, Pastor Lau, Shona's dad, um, and Hakim, are all more concerned with heaven than earth, and that affects every judgment they made. And and in my life, I've met people who at least outwardly are more concerned with heaven than earth. And they, they'll talk about where they're going and where we're going as, as both a, a ruler to measure their morality, a ruler to, to hit their kids with, and then as something that provides them like 
so much comfort. So I, I think it's a very, it's a, it's a very complex thing, and our relationships with God are very complex. I don't know if they need to be, but, but they are because they're attached to so many of these flaws or these insecurities within us. I think as well, kind of on that note, something I really appreciate about your characters is how like they're all quite flawed. Like none of them are are kind of like perfect emblems of like, oh, this is how you be a good Christian. This is how you be a good Muslim. This is how you be a good man. I, I think um, sorry to interrupt. I think. I think the I think Shona obviously the book is told in first person and I would argue I would argue Shona and Elia are on pedestals and that was that was done intentionally you know what I'm saying because what another thing I do in in, to, in terms of the craft and this is what I think this isn't isn't unique at all so many people do this but I establish the want as opposed to the need in the character very early on Seon's want is obviously the house on the hill his need is parental love in the absence of parental love, people seek so many other different kinds of loves in different ways. And because he's denied a love from his his two primary caregivers, his mum and his dad, although his mum has more impact on him, I was thinking about how that would affect his relationship with the women in his life. To some extent, he has a mother in Nanny, although that relationship is is, is marred by her treatment of Cuba. So that relationship slightly more complex. Um, but with Shona and Elia, he I think he, Seon perceives them as quite perfect. Sure, I was I was thinking about it. I I thought about this a lot when I was writing it. I know I know that men write, wim, well a lot of women write women rubbish. So men we don't have much of a chance. So that's something I was very conscious of and I was thinking about a lot. But then, I had to think I had to weigh that and my desire to show that to show women in a full and complete way against this, the narrator and what the narrator's perception of women would be. Mm. And I had to fight the temptation to be like, yeah, I'm one of the good ones. I understand as much as I can women, mm. you see what I'm saying? And I had to, I had to think more about how, how the narrator would perceive women. So I think Shona and Elia are quite perfect. And in a way, I think he, Seon requires them to be perfect yeah well i guess they both offer him a kind of like escape right into like a different kind of life yeah definitely of us being attracted to our parents in our partners but i think that definitely makes sense because we're we're taught or not necessarily our parents but the people who raised us because we're taught Mm. what love is by them and we're we're shown the first relation example of a relationship we see is either the presence of of two parents or caregivers or the absence of one or both. It, it plays into it, do you know what I'm saying? But then with the, well, I guess the male characters who are more flawed or kind of imperfect, um, why did it feel important to you to, like, represent people like that? A lot of your characters are really likeable, but it doesn't feel like you were worried about whether they would be liked or yeah, not. Yeah, well, Obviously, both of you are writers. So you know, the only thing you really have to achieve is to make people care, as opposed yeah. to making people like the characters. The only thing I did consciously to make someone like Seon was, you know, in the beginning, in the shop, where the two kids steal from the shop and then Seon covers their tab. That is the only thing I've done to make the audience care for him. But really, he would have, he would have done that regardless. Like, it wasn't like... It wasn't fake, he would have done it regardless. But the reason I've chosen to tell or show that scene is to have the audience 
be on his mm. side because then two seconds later, or maybe it's two seconds before, I've just said that, oh, he's killed someone. And I think that happens like a lot with Cuba as well, where there'd be like a real like cold, cruel violence about some of the things that he does. Then the next, and then it would be like juxtaposed with like this really like beautiful tenderness and how he treats his family. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's something that really struck me with, with Cuba. Yeah, that's my, that's my favourite character. Writing through women through Sarah's perspective, but also holding all the other things that you were talking about in mind. I wondered about the role of artistic responsibility, writing across experiences that aren't your own and how, how you navigate that. Yeah, I think, that's, um, I think that's very interesting. And I was talking to a writer recently who was saying that he doesn't feel much, or at least I understood what he was saying, saying that he doesn't understand, doesn't feel much of a responsibility, which I found mad. Because even before... I became a writer before I became an artist, artist. I watched James Baldwin's talk on artistic responsibility. And that really, that stayed with me. I've watched it a few times since, that stayed with me. But um, I think we have a great responsibility. Obviously you can't tell every single story at once and I don't think you should ever tell a story with appeasement in mind. Or you should never tell a story like trying to protect anyone's feelings. Um, but at the same time, you'd certainly have a responsibility. And I would, I would say that those, the two responsibilities you have the, the most, well, I guess it's different depending on your own identity as a writer. But for myself, how I represent women is very important to me um, because I'm not one. And it's, it's, that, it's, it's that simple, you know what I'm saying? I'm not one. We live in a, in a patriarchal world, let alone a patriarchal society. Um, I don't want to contribute... I can explore patriarchy and I can explore patriarchy by creating horrible women. I can explore patriarchy by creating empty women in the same way I create empty men and horrible men. Um, but, yeah, so that's something I have to be conscious of. But then it, when it comes to race, I think I have less responsibility because because I'm black and then because blackness, if there was like a... I saw some say it's not like a Olympics of discrimination but if there was we would be the winners i have less concern in when it comes to responsibility as as a black writer as a black artist blackness is something again that i'll always explore and i'm very conscious of and is, that is in the forefront of my mind when i'm writing this book olive grove and ends has has very little to do with race race is not very explored because it exists within a bubble and then it only really is explored by the fact that it is a bubble rather than, like, actually being explored as a theme. But, yeah, and then the, there's different responsibility for different things, like the Somali... This, this is in regard to culture. The Somali community I have a responsibility towards because, again, it's, it's a culture and a community that I don't belong to. So I have mm. to be mindful of how I'm... Uh, how I'm representing them, how I'm discussing them. I think there's things that, that I can discuss about them um, and there's things that I believe aren't my place to explore um, in them. Obviously, there's nothing, there's no a human emotion or experience that's specific to them. But when you combine that experience with the culture, there would be a certain way that that culture responds to that experience that will differ to other cultures. And then that sometimes that's not my place to explore. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think I think we have I think we have massive responsibility as artists. Would you would you agree? 
yeah I think definitely I think as an artist in terms of what you write about and then also I guess like once you're given a kind of public platform there's I think there comes like a sense of responsibility with that as well like do you feel that now you've got this space where people are listening to to you do, do you feel that pressure uh no I don't think I'm anywhere near big enough do you know what I'm saying but I agree though I think as your fame increases that responsibility increases and I'm not really a fan of artists who shy away from that or not even artists could be athletes or anyone in the public eye and whenever I hear someone say ah oh, that I had rappers or athletes say, oh, um, I don't want to talk about that, or I can't... Actually, no, it's not like I don't want to talk about that. They say, like, oh, I'm not a role model, but you are, like, and you mm. you've, you literally signed up to be one. But on the flip side of that, I'm also not a fan of when unqualified people speak on things they shouldn't talk about. And there's a what person I have in mind, but they could ask, like, a black athlete, oh, what do you think about this racism? What do you think about this incident that happened? And like the person gets punched in the face for a living you know what I'm saying they're a boxer they get punched in the face for a living um, they can have opinions of course everyone can have opinions but there are such things as uneducated and educated opinions and I think it's quite mm. dangerous when you don't know about a topic and you choose to speak on it in the public eye do you, do you think as well if you're writing about a place that like people haven't read about a lot do you think that gives you more of a sense of responsibility as well? You know, if like, I don't know, there's like thousands and thousands of novels set in London, right? But probably less novels set in Easton or like I'm from Sunderland. There's not many novels set there. And I feel like for me, it, it that has a bigger kind of responsibility maybe because there's less portrayals of the place. Yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd agree with that as well. But I think because... Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But I think because um, the people I've written the book for are from Eastern, mm-hmm. then it's like that responsibility, again, was front and centre. So it wasn't mm-hmm. something that I was like, oh, I have to be careful how I portray this because I was portraying it for them. And from your own, like, yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know about that place. And it's a story. Yeah. Like, you have, to, you have to understand as whether you're watching a story or reading a story, this is someone's perspective of a place. Yeah, I think it's those two those two things of like, with artistic responsibility, it's like, why am I writing this? And who am I writing yeah. it for? Or like, you know, the, how those two connect, I feel like are really crucial. I agree, I agree. It's been really great chatting to you and huge congratulations on your novel. Recommend all our listeners to, to read it. It's an amazing achievement. So yeah, thanks for coming on Tender Buttons. Appreciate that. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.